Any any prayer requests? Um, wait, before we go there, I, I hope everybody's okay. We've, we've got news all around us from our kids um, because they're out in the world more than we are, certainly more than I am. Um, just um, an, an, a, a large number of people, older people dying from COVID, um, fathers and mothers, um, and all close by. Um, how are you guys doing? Are you guys taking care? Are things going well? How are you all? We're good. Good. Tracy, good you okay? Sorry, sorry, Mark. Go. Good as can be. Yeah, good. So, yeah, I'm in my golden years. I'm loving it. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to find. I've got to find a way to cancel some people on the class. I've not figured out how to do that yet, but I just can't get into enough trouble anymore. <laughs> yes, you can. Wait, speaking as somebody who knows you, Barbara, yes, you can. Well, not yet. I'm working toward that. Oh, you guys. Come on. Um, any, any prayer requests? Mark, how's, what's happening in your family? Uh, they're doing well. My dad's getting more up and around. Oh, good. It's, he's still on the oxygen, but he's doing well. Uh, he's getting more in trouble, so that's a good sign. <laughs> yes. Um, but no, he, he's doing fine. So. Good. And how's your mother's mental health? How's your mom doing with his improvement? Well, they celebrated 57 years on Sunday. Wow. Oh, wow. wow. Awesome. And I'm actually surprised that she hasn't killed him about 30 years ago. And I'm surprised that she didn't abandon my brothers and me on the side of the road somewhere when we were younger. Um, because we deserved it. Um, so they're doing, you know, they're doing uh, as well as they can be. Yeah, so. that's good news. That's good news. All of it's good news. It's good news for you, too. Yeah. Any prayer requests tonight? Tracy, how's Madison? I don't know if she can hear me. Yeah, I think she did. She's not in a great place, but she'll be 18 in January. So she's at a place where she's going to have, she has to She's in a place where she can make her own decisions. She's not in that um, organization anymore. Is she about ready to leave it? Is she gone? Is she on her own? When she turns 18, yeah, she'll age out of state care. So she's trying to figure out what her next moves are. Boy. I have to tell her that I'm, I mean, when that happens, I'm no longer her advocate. Yeah. Uh, so that I have to face that conversation. You know, when I think about, I mean, the way you put it, um, it reminds me of the Jews leaving Egypt. You know, you, you've lived a life of dependence for so long. And I, this is my reading of the, or the Exodus, that it took a whole generation um, to reach a point where they could take on the burdens of freedom. A generation mm -hmm. had to die. Because they had grown, I mean, that's my reading of it, that a generation passed that before they could enter the promised land. Um, because how in the world, when you spent your whole life dependent and 
you know, other people directing you and taking care of things. You do your work, but you, you don't have the burdens of responsibility for yourself, the freedom. So to have lived as long as she has and reached, and then to reach a point like this, how do you measure that? The, the state, the analysts are not going to get around it completely. She's facing too much. That is such a major change for her, um, or it will be. <clears throat> anyway, we will keep her and you in our prayers. Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Lord, again for our life from you and for the gift of yourself this morning at the Mass, for your words to us. You sent the disciples out. Um, um, with tough instructions not to take anything, to, to move from house to house. I mean, it's clear that they're being told to be careful of attachments. You know, they're there to preach, to take the word out. Um, they can't be bound by things where people don't receive them, wipe the dust off where they do, be glad. But they're all sent out um, as apostles to take Christ to the world. So all of us have that call, Christ, from you. Strengthen each of us to take it seriously, to have the courage to take you to the world, particularly where you're not wanted. Um, it's much easier for people to think they can live the wise, their lives the way they want. That's not so with you. I think it's one of the reasons um, people, more people don't give you the place because they think without you they can do whatever they want and they'll be okay. Strengthen us. Um, I think those of us here know better. So help each one of us to grow in our faith. Um, you said that faith can move mountains. I'm, I think if our faith were stronger, we, we'd be surprised at what we could do um, and give us the courage um, to make our faith real so and help us to take you to the world. I ask a special grace for the work we do together. Um, help us to live these things, um, to make them real in what we do with other people, make them living. Um, particularly the ties that we have, not just the literature, but the ties that we have with each other, um, that we bear each other. Tracy, Barbara, Mark, um, Fred Francis, all of us bear each other, carry each other in what we do because there's a strength um, in doing that. There's um, a genuine goodness in all of you guys. It's a goodness to share. So we offer these prayers. Um, wait, sorry. Ask a blessing on Mindy's mother who just died from COVID. On, um, on Amy's friend's father who just died from COVID. Um, for Terry and John here in our parish, John just died um, suddenly, very young. Be with Terry, um, receive John into your kingdom, please. Wipe away his sins, let any difficulties he faces here be washed away so that he can enter into your order to know the goodness of it. Um, it's what we all long for. 
um, and I ask a social grace on our um, grace on our community, St. Francis, and sees that particularly the people who are involved in this work that we. <laughs> Chesterton's advice is, is it's not a device; it's an argument. Do we have a loyalty to the to the universe, to our world, before we can put ourselves in a position of criticizing it? We were born into this world before we have anything to say about it. So help all of us carry a spirit of gratitude um, um, to everything we do with other people, particularly because we know the mercy that you've offered us that we didn't deserve. So help us to take that to all that we do with other peoples and still fulfill the law, every iota of it. Um, to stay with you. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, um, I'm going to try to do this quickly. We haven't been together. By the way, I want just on, online, I want to take a second just to thank Fred again for helping out because a week ago um, we lost um, computer and for several days we had no phone or Suzanne had her cell phone, but we lost everything, and so I hope it wasn't. I hope you weren't inconvenienced, um, and that you got the message in time. And but I want to thank Fred again for helping out. Um, <coughs> we haven't been together, and the last time we were together, I felt like we hit a snag. I want to get back to that snag, but since we haven't been together for a little bit, I want to just try to quickly do a review to to gather our thoughts because I, I'm, I'm a little bit concerned that we, our work on orthodoxy has been so spread out, I'm not sure everybody's holding things together. So I'm going to go back very quickly um, and just recall some of the major points of the chapters leading up to where we are now, some of the principal points. Um, There's a couple of broad things I think are, that are worth saying here at the outset. One is, Chesterton says very clearly that everything contained in orthodoxy has its roots in the Apostles' Creed. So in, in a very indirect way, he hasn't entered the Catholic Church yet, but in an indirect way what he's doing is affirming Christianity, even though he doesn't mention it much. So he's directly speaking to problems of our faith. But part of the power of orthodoxy, at least as I read it, is that he comes at that problem from the perspective of the world. So he's not, he's not catechetical. He's not saying, here are the theological principles you have to live. He's speaking as somebody in the world, of the world, able to use the world's ways and argue with them or support them. And in all those instances, what we find is that there's a tremendous support for our faith from the world. The church would put it in terms of faith and reason, that the two are for us compatible, that we should be able to use reason in a way that defends our faith and makes convincing arguments against those people who would oppose it. So 
the power of his work is that he's speaking in terms of the world. All of his references are to worldly things. Um, in the first, in the maniac, he's taking on um, the way in which people use reason and argues that the way in which people use reason is largely insane. He says most of the chairs in England are occupied by people who are mad. He's not exaggerating. He believes that. He's arguing with people, everybody, because of the way they use reason. He says, um, if great reasoners are often maniacal, it's equally true that maniacs are often commonly great reasoners. When I was engaged in a controversy with a clarion on the matter of free will, that able writer, Mr. R.B. Southers, said that free will was lunacy because it meant causeless action. And the actions of a lunatic would be causeless. I do not dwell here upon the disastrous lapse in determinist logic. Obviously, if any actions, even a lunatic's, can be causeless, determinism is done for. One of the principal assumptions of Chesterton's arguments is that miracles are real. We're surrounded by a transcendent order, and we feel the effects of that order all the time. So he, over and over again, he's... The, the reason for his argument, the insistence of it, is that, is that most people in his time and most people in our time believe in determinism, that all things are determined. There are no causeless things. We don't have free will. We are... Oops. My screen just went. Sorry. Did, did your screen black out, or was that just on my side? No. Okay. Um... He's arguing against the belief in determinism, that all things are determined. That's Darwin, that's Freud, that's Marx, all of them. They put forth these theories, but at the basis of them are these beliefs that all these things are determinants. It's one of the basic premises of the sciences. If you argue with a madman, he says, it's extremely probable that you will get the worst of it. For in many ways, his mind moves all the quicker for not being delayed by the things that go with good judgment. He's not hampered by a sense of humor or by charity or by the dumb certainties of experience. He's always clear-headed. The problem is, he says, that he just moves in a smaller world. It's more constricted. It's not as open. Um, the madman's explanation of things is always complete and often in a purely rational sense satisfactory. Or to speak more strictly, the insane explanations, if not conclusive, is at least unanswerable. This may be observed especially in the two or three commonest kinds of madness, and he gives instances of them. Nevertheless, he says, the madman's wrong. If you try to trace it out, he says, you will find this principle always there. Now, speaking quite externally and empirically, we may say that the strongest and most unmistakable mark of madness is this combination between a logical completeness and a spiritual contraction. The lunatic's theory explains a large number of things, but it does not explain them in a large way. If I can use an analogy, it's a little bit like a shovel, like, like call it a, um, a tractor with a shovel. You've got this large shovel, but there's very little dirt in it. It's just not carrying much. So he's saying that the mark of a madman is that um, he just moves in a very small circle. You can't break into his reason because his reason is so tight within it. Um, which you, at some point, I think he says, what you want to do is sort of crack him over the head 
to get him in his will to do something because so long as you stay in his head, he's not going to hear anything but his own reasons. Um, um, he, towards the end of his argument, he says, um, The man who begins to think without the proper first principles goes mad. He begins to think at the wrong end. For the rest of these pages, we have to try to discover what the right end is. What is it that what is it that can help us to have happier lives in the way that we live in the world? You know that, I mean, the scientists will give you one answer. The fundamentalists will give you another because the fundamentalists will say, I believe in Christ. Christ is my savior. But he also believes that the world is corrupted that man is depraved, that reason is depraved. So there's no reason for him to try to use reason to persuade people. The issue is settled for him. Um, mysticism keeps men sane. As long as you have mystery, you have health. When you destroy mystery, you create morbidity. The ordinary man has always been sane because the ordinary man has always been a mystic. He's always allowed for something beyond. The modern world is set it off from other worlds by believing, following the, you know, the advent of the scientific revolution, that all things are determined. Um, the Christian permits free will to remain a sacred mystery, but because of this, his relations with the housemaid become a sparkling and crystal clearness. He can allow for all sorts of things with servants, the neighbors, teachers, lawyers, whoever, friends. So, um, in the maniac, he, what he sets out to prove or be convincing about is that the world is a good place. And one of the things that makes it good is um, that it's, um, it's surrounded by a transcendent God. Mysteries, miracles have a place in our life. And because they do, um, it makes of our life ad an adventure, a romance. I want to underscore that because you know how important that is for me and in my stance towards literature. If you take free will away and say that all things are caused, they're determined, there is no adventure. Choices won't matter. They're all determined. Um, for there to be any romance or adventure in life, there have to be laws, creeds, dogmas, that some things matter. And if you break them, if you lose them, there are consequences to doing that. In chapter three, in Suicide of Thought, um, or wait, sorry. Um, he said the great problem with thought is that thought can destroy itself. If thought doesn't rest on sound first principles, or if it doesn't rest on a faith, there's no reason for thought not to destroy itself. The position of the skeptic, the nihilist, illustrates that. If a per person's reason re reaches a point in his life where he says life is not worth living, or thought is not worth having, there's no reason for him to live any longer. Um, 
So what he what he does in Suicide of Thought is take on some of the movements that present threats to man's free will and the possibilities for adventure or romance. If we had everything the way we wanted, I think it would become a dull world. Um, what Chesterton's really advocating is that the uncertainties in our life um, are the source of adventure. Even, even if we're, I mean, you know that one of the things I've been trying to push is that I, I believe even our sufferings are occasions for grace. The trial, this is Boethius. This is the core of his argument. There is no um, bad fortune. God is at work helping. Even if it means we get sick um, or die or whatever happens, there is, there can be in that occasions for grace if we will enter into them with God knowing there's a good there. So all of those things can enhance, can strengthen our faith. And he names, he names all of the materialism and a number of others that all contribute to this kind of morbidity in our age that um, they all, they all, they're all anti-humanist. In some ways, they, un, they, the effect of living them is contrary to our nature. The effects of living them will be shrinking, a shrinking in our souls or our minds or um, in Ethics of Elfland, um, remember he um, he says that one of the things he grew up, no, two of the things he grew up believing were both related to traditions that in his mind were sacred. One of them was democracy and the other was tradition itself. Remember he said that uh, early on in the essay, tradition means giving votes to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. It is the democracy of the dead Tradition refuses to submit to the small and arrogant oligarchy of those who merely happen to be walking about. All Democrats object to men being disqualified by the accident of birth. Tradition objects to their being disqualified by the accident of death. Democracy tells us not to ne neglect a good man's opinion, even if he's our groom. Tradition asks us not to neglect a good man's opinion, even if he's our father. It's really interesting to me, if you think about what Christ did, you know, so many of the Jews believed if there were sins or um, medical disorders, if somebody had leprosy, it was not uncommon for the Jews to believe that was a punishment by God, that people's prosperity was a sign of their election, that God blessed them. Um, so that people um, lived very much in the past with the effects of things. Um, Chester is saying no. Our church says no. We cannot live in the past or, we are, or the future. We're supposed to live in a present with hope, faith, charity. Um, and what happened with the advent of the sciences is that because things were determined, things could not be other than they were. They were always that way. They will always be that way. These things are fixed in our nature. Um, he said one of the reasons he loved fairy tales is because in fairy tales there were laws and when they were broken they always had consequences some way they would teach us things about ourselves remember one of the one of the uh, 
one of the rules of fairyland is what he called um, what he what he formulated as the doctrine of conditional joy he says um, for the pleasure of pedantry I will call it this doctrine that's behind fairy tales the doctrine of conditional joy touchstone talked of much virtue in an if according to an elven ethics all virtue in it all virtue is in an if the note of fairy utterance is always you may live in a palace gold sapphire if you do not say the word cow you may live in a, um, a glass castle you know delicate and beautiful with mirrors and like the queens you know in fairy tales so long as you don't throw stones um, the test of all happiness is gratitude and I felt grateful though I hardly knew to whom children are grateful when Santa Claus puts in their stocking gifts of toys and sweets could I not be grateful to Santa Claus when he put in my stockings the gift of two miraculous legs you know we want things are we grateful it's really funny I'm thinking Barbara of the two of us you know because I got sick and I know you're struggling are we grateful for the for our what we have ourselves you know that we're alive and here and um, the great test of fairyland he says such it seemed to me was the joy of man either in elf land or on earth the happiness depended on not doing something which you could any moment do and which very often it was not obvious why you should not do it I think I gave the example in the Iliad remember the Iliad opens with men making these decisions thinking they're doing right they have no clue we see it because of the way Homer presents it they have no clue that what they're doing is wrong they're making sacrifices to the gods and the gods are already dismissing them I can hear God saying from the Old Testament I don't want remember in the Iliad they start with there's a plague and after the breakup between Agamemnon and Achilles um, Agamemnon has the Greeks um, make sacrifices to the gods and we're made aware that the gods are not hearing them Homer has already that profound sense of irony we hear God in the Old Testament saying I don't want sacrifices I want contrite hearts the whole the whole Iliad you could argue is trying to move Achilles to have a better heart in what he's doing and it isn't until he loses Patroclus that he does um, so in Ethics of Elfland, once again, he takes on a, a number of modern movements um, and then ends um, um, by listing um, the, the principles of what he's come to believe. I'll roughly recapitulate them now. I felt in my bones first that this world does not explain itself. It may be a miracle with a supernatural explanation. It may be a conjuring trick. With a natural explanation but the explanation of the conjuring trick if it's to satisfy me will have to be better than the natural one that is things are not just determined there's always more going on than we see do we live do we live enough aware enough of it as we should second I came to feel as if magic must have a meaning and that means there was somebody to mean it there had to be a creator Third, I thought this purpose beautiful in its old odd design in spite of its defects. Fourth, that the proper form of thanks 
to it is some form of humility and restraint. We should thank God for beer, burgundy, by not drinking too much of them. By the way, Chester loved to drink, and he was way out of, one of his, I think one of his closest friends, he was so heavy, I mean, really obese. One, uh, one of the women who I think, I think wrote some of the prefaces who knew him well said, he was fatally heavy. So here's a man who's, you know, who struggles with these things, but it, it doesn't make him morbid, it doesn't make him unhappy. Um, and it doesn't keep him from being clear-sighted about what it is that we should do to have a la happy life. Last and strangest, there had to come to my mind a vague and vast impression that in some way all good was a remnant to be stored and held sacred out of some primordial ruin. Man had saved his good as Crusoe saved his goods. This is Robinson Crusoe, the story. He'd saved them from a wreck. All this I felt, and the age gave me no encouragement to feel it. Everything in the age told against it. Um, and all this time, I had not even thought of Christian theology. Okay. Um, let me stop. If there's any questions or comments, I want to go quickly back to where we were at Flag of the World, um, because that's sort of bringing to a focus everything that he said in those first few chapters. But let me stop. Any comments or questions about any of his points? I'm going to put all of you on mute just to keep the sounds down and if you anybody wants to come on you just unmute yourself and jump in, okay? No? Okay. The basic argument of Flag of the World, if I can simplify it some, is that when he started out in life, he, he started out with some sense that there are these two men running around the world, looking at the world in two very different ways. One was called an optimist and one was called a pessimist. That was the way most people saw the world. You were either an optimist in which you thought most everything in the world is okay and you're at ease with it, or you were a pessimist and you tended to focus on the dark things and said most things are not okay, they're bad and they need to be changed. Before we go on, because I want to, if I can just highlight some of them, I want to just, because you've all read this now, and I, I think most of us are familiar with those terms, we may even apply them to ourselves, I don't know, but what's wrong with either of those positions as Chesterton presents them? Can you, can you name what's wrong? He will say, after he's gone through them, that it was only Christianity that came in to clarify what was wrong with both of them. It wasn't until then that he saw what was wrong, because most of the time as he was growing up, he was growing up with these two perspectives. And you know from what he says, he saw himself as an optimist because there was something positive in him, because he could not give in to the awful sin of seeing himself as a pessimist. But at some point he realized there's something wrong and it was only Christianity that, that helped him. Fred, go ahead. I guess what I got out of that was that 
Chesterton ultimately believed that you, you needed to be somewhere moderately in between those two. Because if you're an eternal optimist, um, and I, 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 think, I think the way he described it was, an optimist believes that everything is okay except a pessimist. <laughs> and a pessimist believes that everything is bad except himself. It's so bright. And I, I think the, the point is that if you're, you have to be optimistic enough about the world that you believe that if there's something that needs to be fixed, it can be fixed. Yeah. So you can't be an eternal optimist. Yep. But the problem with the pessimist is you believe that everything is wrong with the world and nothing can be fixed and nothing will ever change. Yeah. So yeah. you have to be in the middle somewhere or in between those two poles because we, you know, it, the, the belief of Christianity, of Catholicism is that there are things that need to be better, but we can make them better. It is within our free will to go out and make something good happen. Yep. If yep. you're if you're locked up in pessimism, you're never going to make anything better because you don't believe it can get better. Yeah. Yep. At least that's what I'm pulling out of it. Yeah. No. No. It's and it's right on. I the um, the only thing, and I want to get to those passages. Um, two quick things. You, I mean, both of them were accurate descriptions of what Chesterton says. He, um, he says that the problem with the pessimist is, I mean, as you put it, um, thing, things, things are eternally bad, so there's nothing you can do about them. But his description of him is that the pessimist um, w- will always be honest about wrongs, but never enough to love them in the right way. So he prides himself on being clear about dark things, but he's, he's lacking a love that would be needed to help make them better, you know, to do with the, the optimist. Wait, that's the first. Hold on just one second, Mark. The other was, it's, it's interesting because in, in what, from one perspective, you could say what he's pointing to is in between the two. But at one point, he says very clearly that what he's saying is not well, unless we understand it differently, but he was what he ends up saying is, you have got to be—I don't know how to put it—a um, radical pessimist and a radical optimist. You have to do both of those things at extremes to correct their wrongs. You have to take pessimism even farther than the pessimist wants to go, and optimism farther than the optimist wants to go. But I'll come to that. I want to look at the passages. Mark, go ahead. I don't understand when you say and when he wrote the term to love it in the right way. Because a pessimist by nature, sure he doesn't like it or doesn't love it and doesn't think it can change, but he also doesn't care. So why would he even love it enough to to try and change it? He's not there to change it, he's just there to bitch. Yeah. So I don't understand that this is, I, I guess, a lot of the things in Chesterton. I follow part of it, and then I get to another part, and I just get completely confused. <laughs> I think you've answered it, really. I mean, he, you, you said he doesn't care. You could put that another way and say he just doesn't love. He says here, the evil of the pessimist is then not that he, not that he chastises gods and men, but that he does not love what he chastises. 
Okay, is, but he's not supposed to love what he chastises. Who says he has to love what he chastises? Nobody's saying I don't, he, I don't get that. Nobody's saying he has to. It's just the way he looks at the world. It's not worth doing, so he doesn't love it. What he's doing is criticizing. He's saying that what's wrong with the man is really at, at, at bottom is that he doesn't love enough. Because if he did, he'd look at the world differently. It'd be worth doing something for or about. Let's go on and see if some of these things doesn't help. Some of these things don't help. Um, Chester says early on in Flag of the Week, I want to I get to that point where we were stumbling last week. He says early on, the first, second page, a man belongs to this world before he begins to ask if, he's, if it's nice to belong to it. It shouldn't be a matter whether it's comfortable him or the way he wants. It may not be the way he wants, but he belongs to it long before he can ever take either one of those positions. He has fought for the flag and often won heroic victories for the flag long before he ever enlisted. To put shortly what seems the essential matter, he has a loyalty long before he has any admiration or dissatisfaction. That is, we owe something to the world because we're born into it long before we can start criticizing. But that raises this question. Now that we're born into it, which, which position should we take? Should we be an optimist or a pessimist? Now let me see if I can quickly, just let me give me a minute here. Um, <clears throat> you've got these two men, a pessimist and an optimist. He says, about the pessimist, the lines that I just read. Um, does not love what he chastises. He has not this primary... By the way, this is probably two or three pages into the essay. It's, it's about four pages in. He has not this primary and supernatural loyalty to things. What is the evil of the man commonly called an optimist? Obviously, it's felt that the optimist wishing to defend the honor of this world would defend the indefensible. He is the jingle of the universe. He will say, my cosmos right or wrong. My brother right or wrong. My wife right or wrong. My country right or wrong. Doesn't matter. My church right or wrong. I mean, let's take a, an ultimate position. He would be less inclined to, re to the reform of things, more inclined to a sort of front bench official's answer to all attacks, soothing everyone with assurances. He will not wash the world, but whitewash the world. And all this, which is true of a type of optimist, leads us to the one really interesting point of psychology, which could not be explained without it. We say there must be a primal loyalty to life. The only question is, shall it be natural or a supernatural loyalty? If you'd like to put it so, shall it be reasonable or an unreasonable loyalty? Now, you know, let me, I mean, Chester is the most reasonable man, man I, except for St. Thomas, and I can find nothing in Chesterton that's contrary to St. Thomas. He's, read, he's written a book on St. Thomas. <coughs> he's one of the most reasonable men I've ever known. And he's the one who says, who said, the first time I read it was, faith means you love something without reason. Or sorry, you, faith means you, you have a faith in something when you have no reason for having that faith. Love means you love somebody when you have no reason for loving that person. Hope means you have hope for something when you have no reason to hope. Because they're all supernatural virtues. They're above reason. So part of what Chesterton's saying here is, unless we learn to love something irrationally, we will never be able to help it. If we take the pessimist or the optimist position, we'll be back to the 
point we described a minute ago. If you like, put it so, um, shall it be a reasonable or an unreasonable loyalty? Now, the extraordinary thing is that the bad optimism, the whitewashing, comes in with a reasonable optimist. When an optimist is being reasonable, that's when things will stagnate because he won't do anything. He'll just whitewash them. Rational optimism leads to stagnation. It is irrational optimism that leads to reform. Let me explain by using once more the parallel of patriotism. The man most likely to ruin the place he loves is exactly the man who loves it with a reason. The man who, that we've taught, we, that's where we were last week. He may find himself defending the feature against Pimlico itself, but if he simply loves Pimlico itself, he may lay it waste and turn it into the New Jerusalem. I want to come back to that because that's, I think, where we were tripping last week. Um, so he was struggling between these two positions and unable to free himself from either one, and suddenly Christianity comes and gives him an answer. Um, a couple of pages later, he says, I know that it's just after a quote from Schopenhauer, so it's a small quote so you can find it. I know this feeling feels our epic, and I think it freezes, it freezes our epic. For a titanic purpose of faith and revolution, what we need is not cold acceptance of the world as a compromise, but some way in which we can heartily hate. Here it is. Some way in which we can heartily hate and heartily love it. By the way, this is Hamlet. If you remember his lines, and the, the man is the quintessence, this paragon of beauty, and yet man pleases me not because he's the foulest thing in creation. That's exactly where Hamlet was. Um, and in some points, that's exactly where Ishmael was, you know, with Ahab and then leaving that quest. Um, we do not want joy and anger to neutralize each other and produce a, a surly contentment. We want a fiercer delight and a fiercer discontent. We have to feel the universe at once as an ogre's castle to be stormed and yet as our own cottage to which we can return at evening. The question for us, can he hate it enough to change it and yet love it enough to think it worth changing? Can he look up at the colossal good without once feeling um, acquiescence? Can he look at a um, colossal evil without once feeling despair? I hope this is clear because this is the root of his argument. The tendency when we look at the evil in the world, I mean, Dante faced this or he couldn't have written the Commedia. We can, we can be overwhelmed by it. Remember what happened. Virgil turned him away so that he'd look at Medusa because if he looked at Medusa, he'd freeze. Because evil, looking at evil directly can cause us despair and lock us up. Can we look at evil and hate it fiercely enough to do something about it? Can we look at good, the great good, um, and love it enough to make it real in our lives? How do we do both those things at the same time? Can he, in short, be at once not only a pessimist and an optimist, but a fanatical pessimist and a fanatical optimist? Is he enough of a pagan to die for the world and enough of a Christian to die to it? In this combination, I maintain, is the rational optimist who fails the irrational optimist who succeeds. He's ready to smash the whole universe for the sake of itself. Um, um, this is where his use of the suicide and martyr come in, because remember, the suicide despairs about the world enough to take his life. The martyr loves it enough to give up his life for it. 
so those two images, in a sense, are concrete illustrations of the of the point he's making. Then what he does is he goes through a number of these um, beliefs that um, are the result of this failure of pessimism and optimism to really answer the problems of the world. The martyr, the suicide, the latitudinarians, the, the Puritan Quaker, the inner light of the Quaker, nature, all of these. He said that um, every one of them had something wrong. The latitudinarian Christians believe you take away dogmas, everything will be, everything will be okay. Take away creeds and we'll all get along with each other. If you do that, Christianity becomes a moral code. It's not much different than what the pagans believed or the Jews. The inner light of the Quakers um, encouraged um, a pride, a private sense of oneself. Um, he says um, a few pages beyond, it was the prime philosophic principle of Christianity that's divorce in the divine act of making was the true description of the act whereby the absolute energy made the world that God was outside of the world and in it, and Christ came into the world to bring that divine, divine life into it. Um, he died for it. He loved it enough. And you know that he was killed because he, he, he was honest, truthful about the things of the world in such a way that he made people angry at him. Um, so... He ends saying, um, the important matter was this, that this is the very end, that it entirely reversed Christianity's position on all of this. It entirely reversed the position, the reason for optimism. And the instant the reversal was made, it felt like an abrupt ease when a bone is put back in the socket. I had often called myself an optimist to avoid the too evident blasphemy of pessimism. But all the optimism of the age had been false and disheartening for this reason, that it had always been trying to prove that we fit into the world. The Christian optimism based on the fact that we do not fit into the world. I had tried to be happy by telling myself that the man, that man's an animal like others, but now I really was happy for I'd learned that man is a monstrosity. I had been right in feeling all things as odd, for I myself was once worse and better than all things. Um, hold on. There's one more passage I want to read before I go back to that. He said the, it's a, it's really wonderful. He said it was only when he, wherever things were wrong and different from the world, it was the Christian religion that made a place for that, that showed that, um, it wasn't the way people made it out to be. Um, I'm not going to find it, sorry. But let me go back um, to this, this, um, this passage that I, we, were, um, we were struggling with when we quit last week, and I don't want to spend too much time because I want to try to lay out the paradoxes of Christianity, um, where he says, 
Let me explain by using once more the parallel of patriotism. The man who is most likely to ruin the place he loves is exactly the man who loves it with a reason. Let it be a woman, a man for a woman, a woman for a man. Let it be parents for a child instead of a country. So let it be the church. Let me explain by using once more the parallel of patriotism. Let it be any of them, husband, wife, child, church, state. The man who's most likely to ruin the place, you can substitute any of those, wife, husband, child, is exactly the man who loves it with a reason. The man who will improve the place is the man who loves it without reason. If a man loves some feature of Pim Pimlico, which seems unlikely, he may find himself defending that feature against Pim Pimlico itself. But if he simply loves Pimlico itself, he may lay it waste and turn it into the New Jerusalem. I do not deny that reform may be excessive. I only say that it's the mystic patriot who reforms. Now, I think we were struggling with that. I'm not sure, maybe. But... Um, I can't find that. Oh, it's because it's in the next chapter. Got it. Okay, what's he saying? The point he's making is that if we take any of these other positions that he's been arguing against, we're actually undermining our own happiness. The church, I'm going to try to put this in a larger context. The church calls us to joy. I can, I can remember Father Flynn over and over and over again using this term when he was talking, giving homilies that, we always want things in a certain way, right now, under this condition, this way, because unless I have it, I'm, I'm going to be unhappy. I mean, he was very critical of the way in which all of us are tempted to do that, that we want the world the way we want it, and if it's not that way, we're going to be miserable. So we can either be like the pessimist and, you know, drop our heads and say, things are always going to be worse, that's the way they are, or the optimist and say, things are good and leave them alone. But here he's saying that for, for any real reform, for any of us to get better, we have to do one thing. And he's described it. Or at least we cannot be guided by these two extremes of the optimist and the pessimist. If we're going to do either of those, we have to take either one of them, both of them, to their extremes. It said we have to be a fanatical optimist, a fanatical pessimist. What's he saying? What's he saying? Can we get just practical and bring this down to concrete examples? Fred, go ahead. Well, it, it seems to me like America is, is, a, is a great example if you look at what's going on today. There are some people who fundamentally love the country because of what it was founded on, what it was based on. But also realize that there are, you know, starting out in 1776, there were things that needed to be better. And over the course of decades, we, we've made it better. But the optimists believe that fundamentally the country was a great country and the things that needed to be fixed, we could be fixed. What we, what we see a lot today are people who 
who believe that a lot of the things that America were based on were wrong and want to change those. And ultimately, if you change all of the things that all of those people want to change, America will no longer exist. The America. It was once founded. And to me, I guess when I was reading what Chesterton was saying, I mean, that was the first example that came to my mind because you can see all of the elements there. But you could pick, you could pick the Catholic faith and you could do the same thing. If you look at the fundamental traditions that the church was based on, and there are those of us who believe, you know, I love the Catholic faith, could we be better? Sure, there are things that could be better, but they're more the little T's or the little traditions than the big traditions. But there are those out there today who are attacking the fundamental traditions, and if they are successful, the Catholicism, as it was originally founded, will no longer no longer exist. Yeah. And so you have to have that balance. You have to fundamentally love America. You have to fundamentally love Christianity. You have to fundamentally love Catholicism. And if somebody asks you why, it's kind of hard to get your arms around all that, right? <laughs> I mean, come up with all these things that you love about the country, or you love all these things that we love about our faith, but, you know, why you fundamentally believe that it, they're good is a hard thing to get your arms around. But it's just there. You fundamentally believe that it's, it's, it's good and that, yes, there are things that, you need to, that we need to do differently, but we're still going to fundamentally be American. We're still going to fundamentally be Catholics, but we're just going to be better Americans or better Catholics. Yeah. Um, I'm, I almost hate to ask this question, but I'm prompted to do it by your answer. Um, what does I'm, I, I think I'm going to regret this. Um, what would happen? What would happen if we change the theology or the dogmas concerning Christ? If some, because that's what happened with the Reformation. I mean, Chesterton even alludes to the Arians. Yeah, that's what they're trying to do now. Wait, 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 Mark, let me finish. Let me finish. Wait, hold on. Um, what would happen if we tried to argue as ref, reformers did? Um, about the nature of Christ or the nature of the fall. That is, if we change those original dogmas. I want to be careful right now because I, I want to get back to on a more practical level with questions like this. What happens if your husband's an alcoholic? What happens if your wife's an alcoholic? What happens if your child becomes really disobedient? I mean, just to get down to practical things. What do we do? Because he says here... Um, the evil of the optimist is um, always whitewashing my cosmos right or wrong, my son right or wrong, my husband right, my church right or wrong. So in the church, here to get to, because this protects me from what I'm afraid of at the question I just asked a minute ago, what happens if you change the dogmas? What happens if you let something like pedophile go? Because your attitude is the church is right, so you tend to cover up. The word we used last week was enable. What happens if you're in a marriage and you're enabling your wife or your husband or your child or you're coming down too hard? What is Chesterton saying at a practical level? I want to get to that. What's wrong with the pessimists and optimists? 
my, my, let it be, my church, right or wrong. If we ever take that position, what's, I mean, Mark, now jump in. If we ever take that position, my church, right or wrong, what kind of evils are we opening ourselves to? Just start reading the church history for the past 2,000 years. It's all there. Every bit of it. I mean, if you take the point and you're, over, you're willing to overlook, call it evil, call it sins, call it whatever, uh, for the greater good of whatever, you are absolutely cutting the feet out from underneath it. Because it is the, you know, I, I guess what is important in anything is the foundation, in a marriage, in a friendship, in a job, you know, church, whatever. And all of these little things, if we keep not looking at them and not addressing them, just become cracks in that foundation. And it may or may not fall apart, kind of, you know, God only knows. But more often than not, it doesn't end well. Yeah. I mean, right. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, you, so you, you can't... And we've all had issues. We've all had something in our lives that you really probably thought it was true, but you really didn't want to admit it. That it was going to be really hard to address it. And it caused a whole lot of ruckus. Um, but, you know, eventually it's got to get worked out. Yeah, or, or, or it'll... Well, it'll it, work out one way or another. Well, <laughs> it, yeah, I mean, it, not, it, gonna, it, it depends it, on how you'd handle you'll it. face a disaster or a reform. By the way, don't, just to take up Mark's point when he said go back through history, it's really interesting if you go back through the history of the Catholic Church. I'm a historian on it, so this is a shallow response to it. But what I do know is that up until the 16th century, nobody wanted to change the dogmas, the basic dogmas of the church. The magisterium protected that. But reform was a constant. You can't look, you cannot look at a period of the church when some form of reform wasn't going on to answer problems. Mm -hmm. But but um, I, I don't know of a of a of a air of a time when a major reform took place that changed the dogmas of the church. They unfold slowly over time, but they're you know the the roots of them are the same. But we've had reforms all the time: Benedict, Francis, Dominic. Um, some were good and some were bad. I mean, you you look at. You know, a lot of the early councils, they were wonderful. If you look at Vatican II, not so much. I mean, so, it, it, you know, it kind of depends. Fred, go ahead. To answer your question, I mean, to me, one of the great examples would be, what if we changed the, the doctrine that said Christ was not fully human and fully divine? Yep. If we just said, well, you know, I don't know, he's half and a half, or... You know, he really—he really wasn't divine. He was just a really good human, or right. or he really wasn't human. He was completely divine. Right. It would change the whole fundamental belief system. Flesh it out. Yeah. How? Give. I mean, take it if you can in either direction, wherever you want to go with well, it. I mean, so let's just take the easy one. Let's say Christ was one hundred percent divine and and not human at all. So how would we look to Christ and say, well, we need to be like him? I can't be like him. He was divine. There's no way I'm ever going to be like him. I think 
you know, we, we talked about this years ago when we <laughs> talked about, well, I don't have to be like Saint whomever. Yeah, I right. just have to be the best me I can be. Right. So if, but if, if we looked at, at Christ and we said, okay, well, he, he was, so let's take the other end of it. Let's say he was 100% human and he wasn't divine. So, well, so who made him God? I mean, how does he know better than I do what I should be doing? You know, how is his interpretation of the Bible better than mine? But the fact that he is 100% both things brings me to a realization that is totally different than I looked at it either other way. And I think that was one of the reasons why it was such a big deal back when they were trying to get their arms around that. Yeah. Well, I yeah. think whenever you go in and you change anything fundamental like that, you you risk the possibility of blowing the whole thing away. Yeah. I mean, you, you go in and you look at one of the fundamental beliefs of America, and you pick one. If you say, okay, well, I don't believe that anymore, it changes the whole context. Yeah. the If, if I can pick up on your example, because I'm actually glad you went there. Um how to get into this because that's hard and you guys wear me out I'm just um, if wait by the way there were two heresies that actually took the form that Fred's talking about the Arian heresy argued that Christ was largely human the Sibelian heresy argued that God the father came down as the father there was no son if you take either of those, that, that Christ is all divine. Now think about this, because I, I want to get to a husband and a child, you know, just in our practical everyday lives, because that's where most of our reforms are. Who are we? Uh, the reform in ourselves, to go, that's where I want to go. And so I want to get away from abstractions if I can. If, if, God, if Christ is all God, in what way was our crime against him our original disobedience atoned, and in what in what way? I mean, why would we be called to a sacrifice that, let's say, God made of Himself? Um, why would we? Christ took on our human nature in order to take on our sin, so that He could take it to a cross and die, so that we could die to it. He asked. He says, "Pick up your cross," you know. So if he were just re all God and no man, we're still left with that separation between God and man and we had in the Old Testament. We'd have no way of admitting it. Why admit our sins? For what reason? And why would a God who is only God take on our sins, go to a cross? Same thing if he were all man. And, and what's extraordinary about this is the fact that he took on our human nature as a God. He nailed a God to the cross. Who's he? Christ. Hold on now, hold on. Um, the only sense I can make of that is, I mean, it's a gratuitous gift. He gave us immortality by doing that. He invited us to be immortal. But in doing that, he responded to something immortal in us and human. He both took on our sins in our human nature because we disobeyed God, so we owed God a death. Somebody would have to die to pay for that. But he also answered something immortal in us because we have an immortal soul. We wouldn't be damned eternally, immortally. 
So it would only be by taking on both of those fully that he could have answered our sins and offered us immortality. If he had done one or the other, because remember, Luther's argument on this is consubstantiation means when you take the waiver, it's not fully transformed. It still remains a waiver. When it goes into your mouth, an act of faith will make it whole. But otherwise, it stays the same. So you can throw it away. In the Catholic Church, you can't because we believe it's, it's become completely one and the other. It's a wafer and God in that act. So if you change it, you're, un, you're undercutting that, the principal dogma that Fred's going to, that it's only because he's both God and man that we can have a complete atonement. Now, if I can just stop, even if you have questions about that, let me stop for there. Let's take that to our practical lives. Because he's arguing against the, the Quakers or the Latitudinarians. Let's follow the Latitudinarians who, or, or the Arians or some of the fundamentalists who tend to make God a buddy. They're Arian in some sense. God's, he's human. He's our buddy. There's an Arian quality to that. But let's say you're a, let's say you're a secularist and you say Christianity is a really good thing if it would just take away its dogmas and live by this moral code. What would happen to us if we just lived by a moral code and did away with the sacraments? Serious question, because we, we live, that's a part of our life today in our modern world. What would happen? What would that do to us in our relationship with each other? Take away the sacraments. Take away, take away anything transcendent, anything miraculous. Live by a moral code. Tracy, what would happen? Flesh that out. Um, I think your moral code, I mean, having lived this myself, I think your moral code becomes yours, and your moral code and that person's moral code are not the same. You know, and... Um, I think it's one of the things that we hear is like, we can't do it by ourselves, whatever it is. You know, we have to have the grace. We have to have grace. Yeah. And so if you are living by your own moral code or you're just a good person, or I believe in something spiritual or whatever, yeah. um, you don't, you're not accepting that you can't, that you need grace to do it. Right. And so, those are a couple of things um, I've already expressed, you know, if you don't have confession, for example, the sacrament of reconciliation, um, there's no way for you to, uh, I don't know how to put it, but like you um You have no help in admitting your sins, for sure, to begin right, with. Right, so you end up None. denying that there even is sin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you'd want to hide or deny them. And moreover, if there's, to, to go to, I think to, I'm not sure if this is where you're struggling with. If you take away that and the trans, the transcendent character of it, that's the divine, it's a, it's a, it's a grace, its source is transcendent. 
If you take that away, we have no way of answering anything transcendent in our own souls. Mm. We're animals in some basic way. We lose our way into anything and transcendent or miraculous. If you if you um, take that away, if it's just a moral code. Yeah, and that, so I think sorry, that as you age, we were talking about aging, and I've seen people um, who are in their, you know, our elders, who don't believe there's anything next or else, and just the right, uh, right, emptiness of that. Yeah, yeah. When you're younger and you say, "Oh, I, you know, I'm a good person. I'm good," because you're totally in the world. <laughs> You know, you're totally, yes. the whole world is in, ahead of you and you're totally focused on your being in the world and your achievements yep. and your, all yep. these things. But yep. as you get older, you yep. realize that's passing away. The grass is wilting or whatever, right? So, <clears throat> yeah. Right, wait, are, are you calling my body grass right now, Tracy <laughs> Robertson? Oh, you're too young. You're too young. Withers. <laughs> Fred, Fred, you had a you had a comment. Sorry, go ahead. I I think I think Tracy, you know, was right on. I to me, if it's just a code, it's kind of like the the days of the Old Testament are back again. You've got this long <laughs> list of rules and regulations, but there's no mysticism. There's nothing there that that you can look to that said, well, where did all this stuff come from? You know, why, you know, what what is the ultimate guidepost that we're we're looking to? Because, you know, the, the moral code is just created by man. And some other man or woman can come along and decide, well, that's not the right code. You know, we're gonna change it and now this is the right code. I mean that's going on every day today. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, you, you've got this constantly moving target that nobody knows how to hit anymore. <laughs> you have to have some right. fundamental belief. Yeah. Some some fundamental transcendental guideline or not a guideline, but a, an absolute truth. Yeah. To, it's it's kind of like the difference between north and true north. You know, if you follow north on a compass, you're going to ultimately get lost and not get to where you're going or want to go. you got to understand the difference between north and true north to ever get to where you really want to go. If, if, if man's making up all this stuff, we're never going to get there. There has to be some <clears throat> fundamental belief that is above all other things to, to, to stay on some kind of yep. right track. So yep. if we just go with a moral code, we just lose what Chesterton is talking about and that whole mysticism. Like you get up one morning and you look at this, the sunrise. And okay, well, the sun rose again today. It's what it does every day. But Chesterton's viewpoint was, well, thank goodness God decided that the sun was going to come up today. <laughs> He might decide differently tomorrow, but today he decided that the sun was going to come up. Yeah, it leaves. It, if that makes any sense. No, it, well, for him, it, it makes possible wonder that we keep wonder alive in our character. Uh, Barbara, wait one second, because I want to. I want to press Fred, but not Fred. I want if you others can jump in, but to take off from what Fred said. 
You all know that one of the attractions of Judaism for our modern world, because there are lots of people who convert to Judaism, is that the moral code was just not relative. I mean, the way, the way Fred is describing it. It came from God. Now hold on to that for a minute, because I want to. I want to. I'm on a try. I'm trying to tighten these points where and see where we can go on this. That wasn't just a man-made moral code. It is as it is for many moderns who 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 believe that laws are man-made. They're conventions. You know, the social contract theorists. The whole modern world is based on social contract theorists. We make America's founded on a belief in contract theories. You know, I won't do this if you won't do this. Shylock Antonio went back to a law. It was only Portia who came, who could see implications in it that other people couldn't. But I want to press this a little bit farther. We know that the moral code given by Yahweh on Sinai was transcendent. The origins are from God. It's a transcendent code. So they're not to be fooled with. And I want to press this a little bit farther. I, I'm going to argue Christ did nothing, nothing to go against those Ten Commandments. Those were his fathers. I've said this again because it's not a small point for me. He said, until every iota of the law is fulfilled. Doc, um, so um, he did everything in obedience to his father. His father sent him, he obeyed the law. What he didn't obey was the 600 observances of the Jews made up around it were as he says again and again to the Pharisees, you, you made this stuff up to put burdens on people. These are man things. But he is absolutely committed to his father's laws. So let me take those as a starting point to move our, our discussion along. Those are not man-made laws. They don't just change. Those were fixed. They're from God. What did Christ do that went beyond his father's laws. Doc, I don't know where my Suzanne went. What did Christ do? What did he add? Why did he come? Because it gets us back to that question I had following up Fred's comment, you know, that, that um, it was important that Christ be both fully divine, fully human. What did Christ bring to us um, that was important, that took us beyond can you get the Bible in our bedroom? Mm -hmm. That was beyond what Yaya did with the with the laws. What did he What did he bring us? So that we're not just stuck with humans, with this moral relativism that one person's code replaces another. I think one of the attractions of Judaism for seculars is they realize that at some point the disastrous effects of living that that moral codes change all the time. You're lost. They turn to Judaism because there, there's something sound. It's unchanging. It's God on Sinai. You can't do those things. Because if you do, the effects are disastrous. We know that. So, so, so I want to take our, I want to get off that plane that moral codes are relative and, you know, they, they change. And my question now is then, what did Christ do? Oh. What did he add? What did he bring um, that took us beyond the laws of his father? I think it goes to this, the, the point we were making a few minutes ago that, you know, what happens if Christ is not fully divine and fully human? 
if he's just all divine, what are the implications of that for us? If he's only fully human, what are the implications? We lose in either one of those. What did Christ bring that added something to what his father did? Francis, jump in here. Save your husband. Come on, you've got to come in here. Mercy. <laughs> Can you flesh that out? Can you flesh that out? Well, I think you can go get carried away with the law if you don't different with mercy and... Uh, love it you just are checking off laws and everything because there's there's circumstances sometimes that uh you have to to look at and everything but i think it's the mercy part that that christ brought to it can you can you relate this to the the i don't know how to put this can you relate this to the point that we were making earlier um, that it would matter if he were just God or just man. Um, our belief is that he's both. Right. What What are the implications of that for the mercy that he offered? How? Why is that important for the way that we understand mercy? Ooh, I don't know. <laughs> Do you have you have a response for it? Don't turn to that guy. No. No, I was just thinking about it. I just think the divine nature of God intervened and, you know, helped us appreciate the difference between a man's adding on of 590 other uh, laws on top of the 10 that God originally gave us. And when he, you know, he basically said, I didn't come here to change the law. You know, I... I I came to fulfill the law, yeah. And I think what we, what, it, what we, I, you know, if, if I was one of those poor Jews back in the day, I'd be afraid to walk out my front door because I'd be breaking some law somewhere. I mean, what are you going to do? You got to carry this encyclopedia around with you and look up every day whether there's a law in there somewhere you're about to break. I mean, you know. You, you could be prosecuted for not washing your feet before you went into somebody's house, kind of thing. You know? yeah. So I think I think the fact that Christ was one hundred percent divine as well as one hundred percent human gave us the faith that we needed to to say, you know, God is is come here to straighten us out and make us realize that. We have this uncanny ability to rationalize and modify and just complicate our lives like crazy. And in fact, in, in my mind, Christ made it even easier. He took those 10 laws down to two. 
and said, look, it's really easy. Here's, here's what you need to know. And if, that, and if, if Christ was just a man like all the rest of us and not divine, would we have really paid any attention to that? But the fact that he was 100% divine as well as 100% human, he got our attention. Yeah, the, the, yeah. Well, well, the Jews didn't quite agree with all that, by the way. Well, they didn't. The uh, the other, one of the other things about putting the question in this context that he's all God and all man. Um, by by being all God, he, in effect, he elevated us or anybody who chose to follow. Um, so that our mercy would be greater than just accommodating the law for our own sake or our own sense of our own self-righteousness. By the way, here's the passage that I was looking for in Luke. And this, this is interesting. This is Luke's presentation of that passage that we read from Matthew when we were doing the violent bear away, Flannery O'Connor's, and we spent a good amount of time talking about what that meant. This is Luke's reading of it. Um, the law, this is in Luke 16, 16. The law and the prophets were until John. This is exact rendering, although the language is different. It's, it's much briefer and more to the point. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone enters it violently. But this is the passage I wanted to go to tonight. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. There's no way that Christ would have avoided any of his father's laws. No man could have done it because our sin was against God. So there's no way any of us could have done it, no matter how good we were or are. So it gives us a divine strength to do something to stand with God. And the amazing thing is it actually helps elevate us. The immortal quality of our soul is elevated because Christ took on our nature when he himself was divine so that we could more fully participate in a divine life, eternally. Take all of that away, and we've got the, the image in Flannery O'Connor, and the good man is hard to find. Remember when Enoch went into the museum, and he looked in that glass case, and there was that shrunken pygmy? That's an image of modern man. We are just, sh take away God, take away Christ, and we remain in this shrunken condition. Put Christ back in it, and the, our possibilities for loving increase tremendously. Our, our capacity to look at evil and deal with it with grace increases enormously. Our belief in a God um, who's greater than any of us increases tremendously. Take away that fullness of both of them, and both both all those positions are undermined but hold on because i just barbara you were sorry you had a you were going to make a comment and i sorry to but go ahead jump in here <laughs> no i don't i don't know after all those questions where my i have my comment written down but now that we're past that i don't even know if it makes any sense yeah no you go back let's go back because i want to go back too um well the fact that Christ was God and man, means the church that he um, started um, through the apostles 
um, was not just um, like any other church. It, it was divine. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the sacraments are from that. And the sacraments give us um, maybe not an ownership, but a participation in um, the mystical body. And so that gives us a, a divine path, pathway to heaven or to him. Anyway, that was it. Yep. What is that? What is what? Oh, you don't hear it. Um, I don't know that we can go back to where I wanted to go, but I mean, I'll ask this question and we can take it up or leave it. And if we leave it, I want to see if I can outline the paradoxes of the next chapter so we can at least begin with it. My question is, if we, Chesterton saying on that, that, that passage that I read, We do not want joy and anger to neutralize each other. He says we don't want a balance. That is not what we want. Um, we do not want joy and anger to neutralize each other, produce a, a, a surly contentment. We want a fiercer delight and a fiercer discontent. That means, like like the Jews, we have to stand up in public when people and say things when people are not going to like it. Do we have the courage to do that? You know, I've been in so many of the works that we've read, going all the way back to the Iliad. Iliad or Achilles stepped outside of an honor code. Um, Ishmael stepped outside a code of respectability. We've been talking about respectabilities and the blessings of it, but also the dangers of it, that, that it can define people's lives and they can hide behind it. Um, Chesterton is saying is that we need something that will give us the strength to do something we can't do if we take either of these other positions. We don't want those two things to neutralize each other, produce a surly content. We want a fiercer delight and a fiercer discontent. We want to see the wrongs of the world as they are, or we won't be able to deal with them. And we have to have a love greater than the world has if we're going to reform them. Benedict, Francis, Dominic, Teresa. We have to feel the universe at once as an ogre's castle to be stormed, and yet our own cottage to which we can return at night. How do we bring that to our families, our marriages, our communities, our work? No one doubts that an ordinary man can get on with his world, but we demand not strength enough to get on with it, but strength enough to get it on. <laughs> can he hate it enough to change it, and yet love it enough to think it worth changing? Can he look up at the colossal good without once feeling acquiescence? Because sometimes we can look at a good and be satisfied, like the optimist. Can he look up at its colossal evil without once feeling despair? Can he, in short, be at once not only a pessimist and an optimist, but a fanatical pessimist and a fanatical optimist? That was what Christianity gave. And he goes on, in the, I think in the next chapter, to say, it's in the church that the church made a place for pacifism. It's in the church that the church made a place for war. It was the church's great accomplishment to not let either of those things balance out and cancel out each other. That what you wanted is both of them full board. So let me, let me, let me read the beginning of the paradoxes because there he says it.
Um, he talks about the tendency to see things um, lining up in balance. Remember he said, he gives the example of somebody in Martian, if they came down they'd see an ear on one side and an ear on another, or an eye, or a, you know, a, a, an arm. And when it got to the heart, you'd look over and you'd see that there wasn't something there. He calls this this treason in the universe. Exactly where we expect something, it's not there. Things are get thrown off. It seems a sort of tr secret treason in the universe. Everywhere in things there is this element of the quiet and incalculable. It escapes the rationalist, but it never escapes till the last moment. Now, it's this exactly the claim I have since come to propound for Christianity. Not merely that it declares logical truths, but that when it suddenly becomes illogical, it is found, so to speak, an illogical truth. It not only goes right about things, but it goes wrong, if one may say so, exactly where the things go wrong. Its plan suits the secret irregularities and specs the unexpected. It is simple about the simple truth, but it's stubborn about the subtle truth. We can criticize the church for the wrong reasons. The church is trying to do, by the way, if the church, we think of the church as Christ, the bride, Christ's bride. It is him, the bride here. So everything about it embodies him. Um, its plan suits the secret irregularities and expects the unexpected. It's simple about the simple truth, but is stubborn about the subtle truth. It will admit that a man has two hands. It will admit, though all, all the moderns wail to it, the obvious deduction that he has two hearts. It is my only purpose in the chapter to point this out, to show that Whenever we feel there's something odd in Christian theology, we should gradually find out there's something odd in the truth. Because it's so different from the world. I mean, to go back to Tracy's point, if you live in the world and that's the way you see things, you will never see the church for what she is. What he goes on to do in this chapter, um, we don't have much time, so I want to be careful. What he goes on to do is say, I grew up and I heard all these criticisms of the church. And the more he looked at it, the more he realized that the, the criticisms these people were make, were revealing more about themselves than the church. He said it was like one man saying that a certain man is too tall, and another man would say he's very short, because one man was very short and another man was very wrong, I mean very tall. So of course they'd see him differently. So what he, he says there are these people who accuse the church of being too severe, and these um, there are these people who church it who criticize it for being too loose. Um, he gives the example of Christ because remember in that passage where Christ says to the disciples, what are they, who do they say I am? He said, God, it's just stunning. Um, he said they called John the Baptist um, an ascetic and they called Christ a wine bibbler because he was eating with the sinners. So they accused Christ of drinking and eating excessively, that was their criticism because, going back to Mark's point, they were following all these laws. Um, so let me try one more time, and if we're settled on it, I, we can go to paradoxes, but, but that's where we're going. But go back. What happens when we look at ourselves? We may be eating too much. We may be drinking too much. Um, our husband may be gambling. He may have a gambling addiction. Our wife may be an alcoholic. Our children may be um, sneaking beer. I mean, what do we do in 
those relationships in which we're most deeply involved, um, it can be somebody in the family who's entered a homosexual marriage or you know, done something against the church. What, what do we do? What's Christ's call if we're trying to constantly hold on to this divine love and this justice, this divine justice? What do we do? And what's the danger of loving somebody, as Christ or Chester put, loving them with a reason? <laughs> you want to pick that up again? What's the problem with loving a person for a reason? Because if the reason is gone, then the love is gone. Did everybody hear Suzanne? Yeah. So he's saying we've got to be a fanatical pessimist and we've got to be a fanatical um, optimist. We have to love somebody when we no longer have a reason for loving them. Um, and we have to do things that sometimes are very risky um, if we're trying to help things become better. Because that's what Christ came into the world for, and that's what our church is calling us to. Any comments? Tracy? You're puzzling over something. Come on. Well, I think it's one thing to talk about it in these terms and another thing to live it, obviously. You know, what I hear you say is like, is Chesterton is saying in those fanatical this, fanatical that, is that you have clarity, you know, about the truth. Um, but, and he also says in this next one, Paradoxes, I think it's in the very beginning where he's talking about how it's almost impossible to defend or to explain, and this is what Fred alluded to, the thing that you believe so deeply in, mm -hmm. and he's absolutely right. Right, yeah. Uh, you know, I had a friend ask me, what is truth, the other day, and I had no answer, <laughs> right? And um, so, and I came home and looked at my catechism, and there's a section on truth. <laughs> like, Worst thing to do, worst thing to do, God. <laughs> <laughs> you missed the easy answer. The easy answer is whatever I say it is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you missed the easy one. <laughs> so what am I trying to say? But then if you have, you know, like, well, so like you have a family member who, you know, is not practicing the faith or who's doing all these things, whatever, and you can tell them, you know, like, you know, this is right, this is true. And then, of course, all the arguments come. Ah! And you can't answer any of them. <laughs> so, you know, so I think what you're, I think what you're maybe leading to is like this dramatic, dramatic, that's not the right word. Uh, taking the hard stance where you say, okay, I love you. And so this is true. And I love you. And if you can't see it, then, then what? <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm. I'm not gonna answer that. That's for you to answer that because. So know, it's a wonderful question. That, no, that's such a no. What's so? My question to you is, what's after that question mark? Yes. Then what? So do you it, love them, let them go, kind of thing? You know, um, or love them and keep them around even though they're, you know. <laughs> I don't know. One of the one of the 
I don't know if I'd read Chesterton before. I don't remember where I read him in my life, but you you know that he's had a major impact on the way I think and what I try to do in my life. Um, in one of Shakespeare's plays, it's called Measure for Measure. It was an interesting, and I don't see critics going to this stuff. It's, it's just amazing what critics overlook, but it's, a, it's about a duke who goes in disguise and lets this man take over rule in his city. And there's a, a, a woman who is one of those, I guess, probably the most beautiful woman. And the, the guy who takes over the, the authority of the town the, as a ruler wants to have her sexually. And I can't remember what the original duke does, but um, he, has to make, he has to risk something in order to affect something. So on the surface, it's like, we didn't do a, um, all's well that ends well with Helen, and I'm really sorry because lots of feminists look at Helen as a Machiavellian figure. She's not like Claudius in Hamlet, who's a Mac real Machiavellian, but she sets out to fulfill this, these conditions that her husband put on her and, and does an amazing job. She's an extraordinary, one of, one of his great heroines. This guy uses somebody um, um, and takes a risk um, and he, he substitutes this guy for an execution um, who's a bad guy and deserves it, I think. I can't remember the details. And after he does that, he gets the news that somebody in the prison died, so they will substitute that guy for the guy he was going to have executed. That stunned me because it was, it, it's a little bit like Abraham with Isaac. He did something and was spared the loss of his son because he did it. And in our world, in our contractual world, I'll do this if you do this. We bargain with God, I'll do this if you, you know. But to go out on a, to go out on a limb and risk something involving, I mean, what's after your question mark? What? You know, when the arguments come and somebody doesn't listen, and then what do you do? Because it's no longer a matter of using reason. You have to act. What's after that question mark? Um, what stunned me about that, and it was a, I mean, it, it's just, it's, it has a lot of value for me when I look at the world and the fact that people don't want to do something unless they're going to get something back or their risk will their profit. I mean, that's our whole economic, where it teaches us to risk where we can profit from it. But to, to risk something involving those people we love is another thing, because at that point you're not talking about getting money back for our financial investments. You're talking about being with Christ, because a Catholic, unlike most Protestants, when he takes the Eucharist, he has before him daily or on every weekend a sacrificial act. Christ didn't do it for himself. He did it so that other people could be better when they didn't deserve it. So... A, a once again, I mean, to go back to our original question, a divine love is brought into play involving somebody who doesn't deserve it, us. We take him into us when we don't. We're, 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 we're expected, we know that from the parable of the, you know, the, the uh, unjust steward and some of the others, that, um, that when he forgave them, they didn't go out and forgive themselves. We are expected, we're not expected, he doesn't expect us to not take the law seriously because he did. He does expect us to love where love is not deserved. What does that, what does that entail in the way of risking? 
this guy did something in order to achieve a good and was rewarded afterwards. For me, that was Boethian. It's something came in. It's, a it's been a serious question all of my life. If we only do something that's risky to us because we think we're going to get okay, will God come in? If we do something without assuming that, my own sense is he's more likely to come in because we're not presuming on him. That's more an act of faith. But I hope you can hear that. That means it really is an act of faith. Secretly, we're not holding on to this. I know he's going to come in. Are you all following? I mean, that is what's, what's at issue right now is what I'm talking about is the importance of mystery in a Catholic's life and the help it gets from the sacraments because we take those things on faith. They are mysteries. It should change the way we live in the world. Um, so our example, are you saying you have the gambling husband and you tell him like, look, gambling is wrong. It's hurting our family. Blah, blah, blah. I love you regard, regardless, but I'm telling you that this is wrong and these are my expectations, whatever the conversation. Right, right. And, um, and maybe you even go to it's wrong in the eyes of faith or, you know. So, and then the husband says, well, I don't care. I'm going to keep gambling. Yep. So then you take a risk and say, well, if you're going to keep gambling, then I'm leaving or yeah. you have to leave. And you take that risk by the clarity that you have and standing up for what you know to be true and then hoping, I guess, that God will intervene. Right. And um, your Isaac will be spared, right? <laughs> your husband right. will go, oh, you know what? You're right. I, I am wrong. Well, I'll we know, it. you know, the interesting thing is we know examples. Of, I mean, let me take an example. Because I, I think either he stays there which isn't help. That is, your, if love means acting for the good of another, I would question how much you're loving him because what he's doing is not good for him. It's ruining his life. I mean, it's really. But if you risk telling him that and giving him an ultimatum, which is really what that situation yeah. calls for, yeah. then, and he doesn't take it, yeah. he keeps and he goes on and gambling and all this kind of you know on his own. Then what have you done? Here, I mean, let me not enabled. Yeah, right. Here, look. Let me go back, because this is where I was hoping we'd go with this, because it involves us more immediately in our, in our own lives. Let me go back for a moment. Before you get, so before you get to the point where he leaves, I mean, as an actor, and let's say Portia, how she would handle this, let's, for, for example, um, because she's facing the same sort of thing, dangers on both sides of her, and either side involves a real loss. Mm -hmm. um, so... I, I would say if you reach that point, because let's say your husband's a gambling addict and it's really hurting him and it's hurting the family. The first step is sleep upstairs or let's go, let's go to counseling. I mean, you do something to draw a line without bringing it to a point where he has no option except to leave. I mean, these are, I'm trying to get real about what for me are real problems. If it goes to the other, I mean, because we know there are examples where wives have stuck it out with their husbands over real addiction problems. And husbands have stuck it out with their wives with real addiction problems. They've done things and they go through a period of having to deal with these awful things and come out okay. But now to go to your question, the guy's left and he's still practicing gambling. I mean, so what do you do? I mean, my answer to that is at least... From that point on in his life, he knows that somebody, at some point in his life, my hope, my belief is, 
at some point in his life he will realize that somebody did something that involved a risk for his good. So even if he didn't come to it immediately, the question for me is whether that won't help him eventually see himself more truly. It's like the um, prodigal son, you know, who wastes his inheritance and feeding off of pig slough and, you know, and wants to go. I mean, those are those are part of Christ's parables, that that people do turn um, when they when they experience enough misery, let's say. So, but if you don't, I mean, to go to Chesterton, if you don't, you're either in a position of being stagnant or ignoring it, you know, when it's not helping somebody, and it's particularly important if you say it's somebody you love, because real love means acting for the good of another, even when that puts you at risk. The question is, how wise are you, how loving are you in what you do there? Because we, the pessimist, we know that there are people who will say, get out of my house. I mean, I, I don't hear a love in that. It's a self-righteous, this is the law, you've broken it, leave. I mean, th that's our whole tradition, and, and it's, a, it's a serious one for me because how many people today grow up with those, that spirit instilled in them? To have the courage to love, to risk, to endure, to go to a cross, to not get self-righteous. This whole struggle of bringing the law and mercy together, to me, is one of the defining marks of Catholicism. If it's the law, it's, you're a gambler, get out of my house. You know, I mean, I would say before that, you say, this isn't good. I can't do this. I'm not going to leave you sleep upstairs. Um, if we're going to do something, let's go, you know, something to try to help before you get to an ultimatum. And I'd say the same thing is true in raising kids. You, you know, you, wait one second. You know, a kid's doing something that's not good. You, you don't want to beat him up. But you want to help him in time. It's really interesting to watch our kids raise their kids. Because no, it really is. I mean, I'm watching them learn um, from our mistakes and struggling to live. It's just wonder. I, you know, I'm watching our son. One of our sons and and his wife said they're going to hate us for doing this because they had to set laws, boundaries that the kids knew they wouldn't like. You know, I mean, we, we just see a lot of this going on with our kids, raising their kids, the discipline and, and how they've learned to work with time, to be patient, to, you know, to let time have a, a place. Um, and I, I'd say that aware that, you know, when we look around us and watch what's going on in families, I mean, what's going on in families in our world today is, is a horror to watch. It's just the enabling, the fantasies that people and what it leads to. It's just, it's just so disturbing to watch. I am. Any, any comments or anybody want to jump in here? Here's what I'd like to do next week. Um, I think I can cover um, the paradoxes of Christianity pretty directly. I, the description I gave before is, I think, pretty accurate. Chesterton makes clear that he grew up with all of these people taking these various positions on Christianity, and he found over and over and over again that they contradicted each other and that they ended up revealing more about themselves 
than Christianity. When he looked at Christianity, he realized something was there that people weren't seeing. And so he lays all of that out. I'd like to look at some of those positions, particularly the one on courage, because he describes courage, let me just if I can go to it for a second. Um, he, he talks about the, um, the way in which Christian virtues have been separated, like modesty and convictions or, or mildness and, and courage. He says, modesty should never keep a person... So here, here again, here's modesty. Here's having convictions and being bold. The modern world has separated them, so they're left alone. So people believe that in order to be modest as a Christian, you've got to be quiet. So you can't stand up and make a defense of yourself. And he's saying you have to combine those two things at full board. You have to be completely humble and brave enough to say, no, stop, or, you know. So he says that all these Christian virtues after the collapse, you know, with the Reformation, have, have gone on wandering, separated now, and they're causing more harm than good. And he looks at some of them um, in the middle of the essay. He talks about courage, and he says, No quality has ever so much addled the brains and tangled the definitions of merely rational sages. Courage is almost a contradiction in terms. It means a strong desire to live taking the form of a readiness to die. There's that risking. If you don't have the courage to risk in facing the danger, the likelihood is that we will lose, whatever the circumstances are. So he just happens to take courage on as one of them, but I'd like to look at several of them because they're all important. I think that's particularly important because it lines up with our faith. Christ says, don't be afraid, be not afraid. He asks us, go into, he says, you're going to be like lambs. He says, you're going to go get cut up. That's from Christ. Um, so in paradoxes of Christianity, he's going to be looking at paradoxes, things that seem to oppose and contradict each other, and yet in the church have been reconciled. So I'd like to look at that chapter only briefly, and then I'd like to go on to the chapter after that. It's the Eternal Revolution, which I think is one of the most amazing chapters in the whole of the book. Because he's making the point that in order to, to be a Christian, which for him would be a Catholic at some point, in order to be a Christian, that means every day of our lives we should be changing because we're involved in an eternal revolution. It can't be for us, Christ is my Savior, it's all over, it's done. It means we're constantly growing. And if Chester, if Chester is speaking the truth, we're growing into these tensions, these contradictions, these, you know, having to, to be fiercely patriotic or fierce, fiercely optimistic and fiercely pessimistic that we've got to have the courage to see awful sins and, and see the graces that can answer them, that, that our place in the world is to pull all of these things that seem not to go together, together um, in a strange way because the source of them is in Christ and what he did. So let me stop. Any last comments or questions before we go on? I want to do paradoxes and eternal revolution. Any 
Have you all finished? Did you, Mark, have you finished? No, no. I've done the two you were going to do next week. Oh, good. They're, they're tough. All of them are tough in a way. They're Yeah. Chill. I'm on, I've got to do the, I'm on Romance and Orthodoxy. I've got to start that one. Yeah. He is so right on the Romance of Orthodoxy. If you didn't know it before, I mean, there's no way you could not know it in this class because it's been true of us since we started the Iliad. Um, we're, we're involved in a romance. There's nothing that we've done that hasn't involved a real adventure, some conflict and some struggle. Every work that we've read has that at its heart. That's why they're such good works. Anybody else? Um, Barbara, any last thoughts? Fred? Tracy? No. Okay, it's good to see you guys. I'm saying this pretty seriously because I'm actually getting a little bit worried about it. You guys stay safe. You guys stay safe. Um, keep, keep us in your prayers, please. Um, please. Um, it's a iffy time. Um, but anyway, you all take care and be safe, and we'll see you next week, okay? Have a good week. Bye. Bye. Two minutes past the hour.